Today in our class on Christian experience, we're going to talk about what do we do if we have a backwardness, an aversion, a struggle with spiritual duties and devotions. In a sermon called, It is Sometimes So With Me That I Would Rather Die Than Pray, Alexander White, now this is taken on Thomas Shepard, Pilgrim Father and Founder of Harvard, his spiritual experience and experimental preaching, quote, Suppose for a moment, did we had been left without hope in our fallen estate of sin and misery? Just suppose that we had been left as a race with nothing before us but a fearful looking for of judgment. And then suppose we were told that there was another race of sinful and miserable men exactly like ourselves in one of those wonderful worlds that we see in our midnight sky. Suppose we were told also that to them in their fallen state their maker had himself become their redeemer and had prepared a throne in the heavens so that by simply approaching that throne, they could command his ear and his heart and his hand at any hour of the day and in a watch of the night. Suppose that all had been told us about those happy creatures, with what holy wonder and with what holy desire would we have gone out of our house at night and looked up to that far-off star? How would we have envied those highly favored sons of God? Oh, that my lot had been cast among them and not on this God-forsaken earth. What Sabbath days they must have up there. What communion seasons. What meaning for prayer and praise. And what family worship. How happy it must be to be a father up there. How sweet and blessed above all words to be a mother. But suppose we were also assured that with all that, those so privileged people simply despised and neglected their maker and redeemer and absolutely hated so much as to kneel down before him. Suppose we were sure that 99 out of every 100 of those redeemed men actually rose every morning and lay down every night as if there were no God and no mercy seat. What would you have said about such men? You would have said that they must be madmen, if the tenth part of what you have been told about them is true. Now, not only is it all true, but more than that, this world of ours is that wonderful star, and we who are assembled in this house of God this Sabbath evening... We are those suicides. It is we who say, What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? What profit should we have if we prayed to Him? Now, if all that is so, can any explanation be given of that so fearful state of manners? A state of manners so fearful that one of the most prayerful men that ever lived here confesses to us that it is sometimes so with him that he would rather face death and judgment than abide for long before God in secret prayer. Now, can that awful state of manners be at all explained? And if so, what can that explanation by any possibility be? Well, at bottom and to begin with, there is some absolutely unaccountable alienation of our sinful hearts away from our Maker and our Redeemer. There is some utterly inexplicable estrangement from God that has somehow taken possession of your heart and mine. There is some dark mystery of iniquity here that has never yet been sufficiently cleared up. There is some awful enmity against God, as the Holy Ghost says it. Some awful malice that sometimes makes us hate the very thought of God. We hate God, indeed, much more than we love ourselves. For we knowingly endanger our immortal souls every day and every night. We risk death and hell itself rather than come close to God and abide in secret prayer. Well, I think that this needs to be qualified. If there is a continual aversion in our hearts to approach God in prayer, it could be that there has been no change in the inclination and the affections towards him. We don't say of a Christian that he hates God. 
But we will talk about what is the problem when we get to John Owen in chapter 5 of his work called A Treatise on Indwelling Sin. Archibald Alexander, quote, Every Christian has set time for prayer and other devotional exercises. But if the mind on such occasion wanders off from the contemplation of those objects which should occupy it, such forgetfulness of God's presence and vain wandering of thoughts are evidently sinful. And here is an arena on which many a severe conflict has been undergone and where, alas, many overthrows have been experienced by the sincere worshiper of God. How are perfectionists dispose of this manner? He's talking about those who believe in Christian perfection or that you can have a second baptism of the Holy Spirit in which you have perfection. I actually had a cousin like this who was down in southern Louisiana around Alexandria went to a chapel called the Free Methodist Chapel, and it was their belief that a person could have the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he believed that he had attained it, where he was now perfectly free from sin. At the time, I was under awakening, and I knew very well what John Owen had said in his work on the mortification of sin, and I challenged him on that. But he says how our perfectionists dispose of this matter, how they explain it, And what their professed experience is, I don't know. I suppose, however, that they are at best no more exempt from wandering thoughts than other Christians. And if so, they must practice a double hypocrisy first in persuading themselves that there is no sin in all of this. And secondly, in denying or concealing from others their real experience on this subject. But is it not true that from the very laws of association of ideas there will often be an involuntary wandering of the thoughts? This is admitted, and it is conceded also that it may be impossible in all cases to determine with precision which of our strained thoughts contracts guilt, and how much blame attaches to us when our thoughts suddenly start aside from the mark, like a deceitful bow. So, the condition described, what is the cause of it? What is the correction for it? Let me quote from the diary of Edward Payson, quote, February 19th, what a poor, weak, and stable creature I am when Christ is absent. I read Richard Baxter's Saints Everlasting Rest, but though it is very affectingly written, I was totally unmoved by it. February 28th, I resolved to spend this day in fasting and prayer. I did so, but found no relief. I was astonishingly dead and wandering in my thoughts. In reading David Brainerd's life, I seem to feel a most ardent desire after some portion of his spirit. But when I attempted to pray, it vanished. I cannot even mourn over my coldness, March 8th. I cannot accuse myself of indulging any known sin or neglecting any known duty, but I am so lifeless, so little engaged in religious things that I seem to believe as though I did not believe. July 18th. Very little comfort in prayer. Have fallen into a sad, lifeless state a week past. Hope it will convince me more strongly than ever of my weakness and vileness. From the life of David Brainerd. Lord's Day, April 4th. My heart was wandering and lifeless. On the evening of the next day, he complains that he seemed to be void of all relish of divine things. Felt much of the prevalence of corruption and saw in himself a disposition to all manner of sin which brought a very great gloom on his mind and cast him down into the depths of melancholy, so that he speaks of himself as amazed, having no comfort, but filled with horror, seeing no comfort in heaven or earth. Monday, June 7th. 
felt still powerless in secret prayer. Afterwards, I prayed and conversed with some little life. God feeds me with crumbs. Blessed be his name for anything. Ruth Bryan, March 30, 1828. Tis hard, hard. Sometimes I cannot pray, and when I try, the heavens seem as brass to my petitions. Surely there is no mercy for me. Again, this is Ruth Bryan. Her diary began in 1822. She was born in 1805. May 4th, 1828. Sabbath. Have attended a prayer meeting this morning, but without deriving benefit from it. August 23rd. Some five or six weeks ago, I had some hopes that the Lord was turning my feet Zionward and that I would be enabled to cleave to him with a purpose of heart. But now, alas, I have reason to believe I was deceiving myself, for my iniquities have again taken hold of me and conquered me. Have I lost those earnest desires after the enjoyment of piety which I before experienced? I am at a loss to account for my strange variety of conduct and feeling, and fear I am entirely given up to work the desires of my wicked heart. At times I feel an entire hatred to sin, delight in the privilege of prayer, reading and meditation, and seem to desire nothing so much as to grow in grace and press forward in the divine life. But soon my besetting sins gain the advantage. Satan represents these in the most captivating light. My heart is ensnared, and I sink into carnal ease and indulgence. Then prayer becomes a burden. Spiritual exercises or devotions lose their charm. And I am brought into dreadful bondage by the terrors of an accusing law and a guilty conscience. Oh, that I knew the secret of real religion, but I fear I never shall. I have so often indulged a hope that I was in a way to its enjoyment, and been disappointed that now know not which way to turn. And shall, I believe, sink in deep despair, or give myself up to work iniquity with those who do not know God. Richard Allain, he was the uncle and father-in-law of Joseph Allain, the author of An Alarm to the Unconverted. Very early on, Baker's Summit Books published his book called Heaven Open, so I got this very, very early in my Christian pilgrimage, like 1983. And Heart of Flesh is one of the chapters in that book, and this is what he writes. This is so powerful to me. In fact, when I started putting my narrations on Sermon Audio 20 years ago, this is one of the first things I narrated, along with the sermon by Jonathan Edwards, quote, Oh, what sorrow-bitten souls are the saints for their lack of sorrow. I mourn, Lord. I lament. I weep. But it is because I cannot mourn or lament as I should. If I could mourn as I ought, I could be comforted. If I could weep, I could rejoice. If I could sigh, I could sing. If I could lament, I could live. I die. I die. My heart dies within me because I cannot cry. I, Lord, but not for sin, but for tears, for sin. I cry, Lord. My calamities cry. My bones cry. My soul cries. My sins cry. Lord, for a broken heart. And behold, yet, I am not broken. The rocks rend, the earthquakes, the heavens drop, the clouds weep, the sun will blush, the moon be ashamed, the foundations of the earth will tremble at the presence of the Lord, but this heart will neither break nor tremble. Oh, for a broken heart! If this were once done, might my soul have this wish, thenceforth my God might have his will. What would be hard if my heart were tender? Labor would be easy, pains would be a pleasure. Burdens would be light. 
Neither the command nor the cross would any longer be grievous. Nothing would be hard but sin. Fear, where art thou? Come and plow up this rock. Love, where art thou? Come and thaw this ice. Come and warm this dead lump. Come and enlarge this straight in spirit. Then I shall run the way of your commandments. End quote. That reminds me, yesterday I narrated a sermon which I would recommend Thomas Manton in his sermons on Psalm 119, verse 32. Enlarge my heart, O Lord, and then I will walk in the way of your commandments. How little, how very little of this tenderness is there to be found in most Christians. The sacrifice of God is a broken heart. Oh, how far must the Lord go to find himself such a sacrifice? We do but cast stones up to heaven when we lift up our hearts. It is a wonder that such hearts as we carry do not break, that our marble does not weep. That, if nothing else, will do it. Our hardness does not make us relent. That we should so labor under and complain of and yet not be sick of the stone. End quote. John Owen, quote, You have been weary of me, saith God, to sinners, and that during their performance of an abundance of duties. Here lies the formal nature of every sin. It is an opposition to God, a casting off of his yoke, a breaking off the dependence which a creature ought to have on a creator. And the apostle in Romans 8 verse 7 gives a reason why he affirms the carnal mind to be enmity against God, namely, because it is not subject to the will of God, nor indeed can it be. It never is, nor will, nor can be subject to God, its whole nature consisting in an opposition to him. What? is aversion. What does John Owen mean by aversion and duties? Aversion is a feeling of repugnance towards something with a desire to avoid or turn from it. Our Savior, describing the enmity that was between himself and the teachers of the Jews by the effects of it, saith unto the prophet, My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Zechariah 11 verse 8. Where there is mutual enmity, there is mutual aversion, loathing, and abomination. So was it between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were enemies. They abhorred one another. John 4 verse 9. Secondly, aversion. It's an opposition or contending against one another. It's an ex-product of this enmity. He was turned to be their enemy. Isaiah 63 verse 10. Speaking of God towards the people, where there is enmity, there will be fighting. It is a proper and natural product of it. Now, both these effects are found in this law of sin. First, for aversion. There is an aversion in sin to God and everything of God, as we have in part discovered in handling the enmity itself, and so shall not need much to insist on it again. So, Owen gets to the core of the manner. This is chapter 5 of a treatise on indwelling sin. The very nature of sin consists in an indisposition of spiritual duties in which communion with God is to be obtained. All weariness of duty, all carnality, all just formality in duty, it all springs from this root. The wise man cautions us against this evil in Ecclesiastes 5.1. Keep your foot when you go to the house of God. Have you any spiritual duty to perform? And do you design the attaining of any communion with God? Look to yourself. Take care of your affections. It will be gadding and wandering, and that from their aversion to what you have in hand, to your present duty. There is not any good that we would do in which we may not find its aversion exercised in itself. When I would do good, evil is present with me, says Paul in Romans 7. 
at any time, at all times, when I would do anything to dispersely good at his present, that is, to hinder me, to obstruct me in my duty, because it abhors and loathes the thing which I have in hand. It will keep me off from it if it be possible. In those in whom it prevails, it comes at length to that frame which is expressed in Ezekiel 33, verse 31. It will allow an outward bodily presence into the worship of God, where it is not concerned, but it keeps the heart quite away. It may be some will pretend they do not find it so in themselves. Well, they have freedom, they suppose, and they have liberty in all the duties of obedience that they attend to. But I fear this pretended liberty will be found upon examination to arise from one or both of these causes. First, ignorance of the true state and condition of their own souls, of their inward man, and of its actings towards God. They don't know how it is with them, and therefore they are not to be believed in what they report to you. They are in the dark, and they neither know what they do nor where they are going. Still quoting John Owen, a treatise on indwelling sin. Let us take into consideration the duties of retirement, what we are calling retiring into secret prayer, private prayer and meditation and the like or else extraordinary duties are duties to be performed in an extraordinary manner. In these will this aversion and loathing oftentimes discover itself in the affections. A secret striving will be in them about close and cordial dealing with God, unless the hand of God in the Spirit be high and strong upon his soul. I believe what John Owen is talking about here is part of the prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, that God would strengthen us by his Spirit in the inner man. In other words, put power in there, enlarge our hearts, so that we could walk in the way of his commandments. Owen says, even when convictions, a sense of our duty, even a dear and real esteem of God and communion with him, have carried the soul into its prayer closet. Yet, if there is not the vigor and power of a spiritual life constantly at work, there will be a secret loathness in them to duty. Yea, sometimes there will be a violent inclination to the contrary, so that the soul had rather do anything, embrace any diversion, though it wound itself by it, than vigorously apply itself to that which in the inward man it breathes after. It is weary before it begins and says, When will this work be over? Some complain that they can make no work of meditation. They cannot bend their minds to it. I confess there may be a great cause of this in their lack of a right understanding of what the duty is itself and of the ways of managing their soul in it, which therefore I shall a little speak to afterward. But yet, this secret enmity has his hand in the loss there also, and that both in their minds and in their affections. Others are forced to live in family and public duties. They find such little benefit and success in private duties. And here has a beginning of the apostasy of many professors and the source of many fully central opinions. They find this aversion in their minds and affections from closeness and constancy in private and spiritual duties. And they don't know how to prevail against these difficulties through him who enables us. They have at first been subdued to a neglect of them. First, a partial neglect. Then a total neglect until having lost all conscience of them, they have had a door open to all sin and licentiousness and so to a full and utter apostasy. 
I will say that uh, Jonathan Edwards well describes this in his sermon on Job 27 verse 10, hypocrites deficient in the duty of prayer. Why it is that the false converts by degrees returns to his sinful life and lives a prayerless life. John Owen I am persuaded there are very few that apostatize from a profession of any continuance, such as our days abound with, but their door of entrance to the folly of backsliding was either some great and notorious sin that bloodied their consciences, tainted their affections, and intercepted all delight of having anything more to do with God, or else it was a course of neglect and private duties, arising from a weariness of continuing against that powerful aversion which they found in themselves, to them. As it is in respect of private duties, so it is also in respect of public duties that have anything extraordinary in them. What strivings, strugglings, and pleadings are there in the heart about them, especially against the spirituality of them, yea, in and under them? Will not the mind and affection sometimes be entangled with things uncouth, new, and strange to them, such as at the time of the least serious business a man would not deign to take into his thoughts? But if the least loose liberty or advantage be given to indwelling sin, if it be not perpetually washed over, it will work to a strange and unexpected issue. In brief, let the soul unclothe any duty, whatever, private or public, anything that is called good. Let a man divested of all outward respects, which secretly insinuate themselves into the mind and give it some complacency in what it is about, but doesn't render it acceptable to God. And he shall assuredly find somewhat of the power and some of the effects of this spiritual aversion, this hostility to this duty. It begins in a loathness, and they become indisposed to it. And it goes on with entangling the mind and affections with other things, and will end, if not prevented, in a weariness of God, which he complains of in his people in Isaiah 43, verse 22. They ceased from duty, because they were weary of God. So let's talk about the cure. But this instance being of great importance to professors and their walking with God, we must not pass it over without some intimations of directions for them and their continuing against it, and their opposition to it. The great means to prevent the fruits and effects of this aversion is a constant keeping of the soul in a universally holy frame. This weakens the whole law of sin, so answerably all of its properties, and particularly Disaversion. It is his frame only that will enable us to say with the psalmist in Psalm 57, verse 7, My heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. It is utterly impossible to keep the heart in a prevailing holy frame in any one duty, unless it be so unto all and every duty. If sin entanglements get hold in any one thing, they will put themselves upon the soul in everything. A constant, even frame and temper in all duties and all ways is the only preservative for any one way. Let not him who is negligent in public persuade himself that all will be clear and easy in private, or on the contrary, there is a harmony in obedience. Break but any part of it, and you interrupt the whole of it. Our wounds in particular arise generally from negligence as to the whole course. So David informs us in Psalm 119 verse 6, then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect to all your commandments. A universal respect to all God's commandments is the only preservative from shame. Again, I'm quoting John Owen here. 
And nothing have we more reason to be ashamed of than the shameful miscarriages of our hearts in our point of duty, which are from the principle before mentioned. Number two, labor to prevent the very beginnings of the workings of this spiritual aversion, that grace be beforehand with it in every duty. We are directed in 1 Peter 4, 7 to watch unto prayer, and as it is to prayer, so to every duty. That is, to consider and take care that we be not hindered from within, nor from without as to a due performance of it. Watch against temptations, to oppose them. Watch against the aversion that is in sin, to prevent it. As we are not to give place to Satan, no more are we to sin. If it be not prevented in his first attempts, it will prevail. My meaning is, whatever good, as the apostle speaks, we have to do, and find evil present with us as we shall find it present, prevent its parleying with the soul, its insinuating of poison into the mind and affections by a vigorous holy violence stirring up of the grace or graces that are to be acted and said it were peculiarly in that duty. Let Jacob come first into the world, or if prevented by the violence of Esau, let him lay hold on his heel to overthrow him and obtain the birthright. Upon the very first motion of Peter to our Savior, crying, Master, spare yourself, he immediately replies, Get thee behind me, Satan. So ought we to say, Get you gone, you law of sin, you present evil. It may be of the same use to us, in quote. Now returning to thoughts on religious experience, Archibald Alexander. Practical directions how to grow in grace and make progress in piety. Set it down as a certainty that this object will never be attained without vigorous continued effort, and it must not only be desired and sought for, but it must be considered more important than all other pursuits and be pursued in preference to everything else which claims your attention. Number two, while you determine to be assiduous, diligent, in the use of the appointed means of sanctification, you must have it deeply fixed in your mind that nothing can be effected in this work without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Paul may plan. In Apollos water, but it is God who gives the increase. First Corinthians three verses six and seven. The direction of the old Puritans is good. Use the means of grace as vigorously as if you were to be saved by your own efforts, and yet trust as entirely to the grace of God as if you made use of no means whatever. Why are you making so little progress? First, there is a defect in our belief in the freeness of divine grace. To exercise unshaken confidence in the doctrine of a gratuitous pardon is one of the most difficult things in the world, and to preach this doctrine fully without verging towards antinomianism is no easy task, and is therefore seldom done. But Christians cannot but be lean and feeble when deprived of their proper nutriment. It is by faith that the spiritual life is made to grow, and a doctrine of free grace without any mixture of human merit is the only true object of faith. Christians are too much inclined to depend on themselves and not to derive their life entirely from Christ. There is a spurious legal religion which may flourish without the practical belief in the absolute freeness of divine grace. It possesses none of the characteristics of the Christian's life. It is found to exist in the greatest growth and systems of religion which are utterly false. But even when the true doctrine is acknowledged in theory, often it is not practically felt and acted on. According from Richard Baxter, now in the Christian directory, directions against sinful hatred, aversion, or backwardness towards God. Direction 6. Draw near and accustom your soul to serious thoughts of God, for it is strangeness that makes you the more averse to Him. 
We have less pleasure in the company of strangers than those of a familiar acquaintance, those that we are familiar with. Reconciliation must be made by coming near and not by keeping at a distance from God. Direction 7. Study well the wonderful love and mercy which he has manifested to your soul in the redemption wrought by Jesus Christ and the covenant of grace. In all the patience he has exercised towards you, in all his offers of mercy and salvation entreating you to turn and live. And you remember what God has done for you all of your life, and how patiently and mercifully he has dealt with you. And yet, can you so have an aversion to him and your heart be against him? End quote. From the grace and duty of being spiritually minded by John Owen, quote, It will be to our advantage, having stated right notions of the glory of the blessed state above in our minds, to fix on some particulars belonging to it, as the special objects of our thoughts and meditations, as one. Think much of him, who to us is the life and center of all the glory of heaven, that is Christ himself. I shall be very brief in treating of this, because I have designed a peculiar treatise on this subject before, of beholding the glory of Christ, both here and to eternity. The whole of the glory of the state above is expressed by being ever with the Lord, where he is, to behold his glory. For in and through him is a beatifical manifestation of God and his glory made forevermore. And through him are all communications of inward glory to us. The present resplendency of heavenly glory consists in his mediatory ministry, as I have at large elsewhere declared, and he will be the means of all glorious communications between God and the church to eternity. Therefore, if we are spiritually minded, we should fix our thoughts on Christ above as the center of all heavenly glory. Two things are required that we may thus think of Christ and meditate on him according to the mind and will of God. One, that the means of bringing him to the mind be what God has promised and appointed. And two, that the continued proposal of him as the object of our thoughts and meditations be of the same kind. End quote. Well, I will say, in addition to this, that the one thing you don't want to do is unnecessarily unsaint yourself. People see this struggle within. And they conclude, maybe I've never been born again at all. And I don't know why that's a good conclusion. How do you how do you come to that? He that has begun a good work in you is bearing witness when you are not walking in the way that you should. You will feel what is called a leanness. I have before me William Gadsby's hymnal. And I love the hymns of Joseph Hart. And when you realize as you read these things, I'm not alone. Other good Christian men and women have had these struggles. This is 875, my leanness, my leanness. Jesus, to thee I make my moan, my doleful tale I tell to thee. For thou canst help, and thou alone, a lifeless lump of sin like me. Fain would I find increase of faith. Fain would I see fresh graces bloom, but all my heart's a barren heath, blasted with cold and black with gloom. True, thou hast kindly given me light, I know what Christians ought to be, but did the blind receive their sight? Nothing but dismal things to see, though winter wastes the earth a while. Spring soon revives the verdant meads, the ripening fields and summer smile, and autumn with rich crops succeeds. But I from month to month complain, I feel no warmth, no fruits I see. I look for life, but dead remain. Tis winter all the year with me, yet sin's rank weeds within me live. Barrenness is not all I bear. I do not sow for nothing grief. Alas, there's worse 
than nothing there. Till on thy promise I'll rely, from whom alone my fruit is found, until the spirit from on high enriched a dry and barren ground, Joseph Hart. And if you are struggling, I'd also recommend, of course, if you haven't gotten it yet, to download at least, if you don't have a hard copy or can't get a used one, Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward's Cases of Conscience. So you can find us at on the wing, one word, on the wing.org. Click on the section where you can see the various works in experimental religion and so on. But there is a copy of this book in Moby, EPUB, and PDF format. Listen to these questions. What methods must a Christian take in declining circumstances? I believe, of course, he's talking about spiritual declension. What methods must a Christian take to recover a healthful and vigorous frame of soul so as to be able to maintain real and close communion with God amidst the hurries and business of the world? How may a person judge the strength or weakness of his faith by the brightness or darkness of his spiritual frame? A7. What judgment should that person pass on himself who knows he is in a dark and corrupt frame but finds himself greatly unaffected by it and stupid or obdurate or hard-hearted under it? Case 19. How may a deserted believer, a deserted believer, he believes he is experiencing spiritual desertion, in other words, God hides his face. How may a deserted believer discover the particular sin or sins by which he has grieved the Spirit of God? And we talked about this one most recently, case number 30. What judgment must a person form about his spiritual state? his spiritual condition, or what must he do if he is in total darkness and cannot see anything of a work of grace in his heart? Let me read just a paragraph from the answer that is given in the cases of conscience. The person who sent in the above case mailed a letter to him with this question. He complains of God's face being hidden from him, and he appears to be in great darkness of soul. But even this is a case that has been common to God's people. Thus Job inquires why God had hid his face from him, Job 13.24. David represents his God as hiding himself in times of trouble, Psalm 10.1. He speaks of God hiding his face and his soul, therefore being troubled, Psalm 30, verse 7. Indeed, the prophet Isaiah goes still further and says that walking in darkness and having no light is consistent with our interest in the covenant God. Therefore, he exhorts them to trust in the name of the Lord and to rely upon their God, Isaiah 50, verse 10. If we examine the experiences of believers, we will find this is frequently the case. God is hidden in his face. Their souls are in great darkness. They can see no traces of the divine image in their souls. Instead, a shade is drawn over all the work of God in their hearts. If we were to conclude that we are but nominal Christians, or Christians in name only, because this is the case with us, then how small the number of real Christians would there actually be? And how unfavorably we must think of those who, notwithstanding this, gave the clearest evidences of their experience of the grace of God. There will be another study this Wednesday, if you are listening to these in order, we're going to be discussing Chapter 4 of Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, Diversities of Experience, and in this case, Temperament. And there's going to be a focus on the temperament of melancholy and what is called religious melancholy. There's a number of things that I've gathered over the years and we'll discuss that. And it's uh, called the dark night of the soul and the 
cases that I'll be reading from seem to be of a little bit deeper level, let's say a lot deeper level than you hear about in our day. And I think it was because in our day, oftentimes, we're very, very superficial about this kind of close communion with God. And so they don't write books like this that are as helpful anymore. And I've read some of them, and I thought that for some of the people that I've tried to help, and including myself when I went through the dark night of my soul between the years 1983 and 1986, a lot of what is written today probably wouldn't help me. I would need to be reading the diaries of the people of a bygone day or some of the reliefs that are in Richard Baxter's Christian Directory, Richard Baxter's sermon that was prepared for the Puritan morning exercises at Cripple Gate on uh, overmuch sorrow and trouble of mind and melancholy. So I look forward to that. That will be recorded, Lord willing, before a live audience. Thank you for tuning in. This is the voice of the Narrated Puritan Podcast, Christian Experience and Assurance.